no introduction today. Lots of work to do. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be covering verses 14 through chapter 11, verse 1. What I want you to walk away with, the main idea this morning is to love God and love others. I want to exhort you to be the church, which has been our theme throughout 1 Corinthians, to be the church by building up the church. Let's pray together and we will get started. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word that calls awake our deadened hearts. It is your word that we, by your word, that we are able to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's by your word that you have revealed yourself to us. It's by your word that you save us, for Jesus is the word made flesh. And it's to your word this morning that we submit ourselves. Lord, continue to help us to become and practice what we've been declared in Christ, which is holy and blameless. Help us to remember once more this morning that we never ever merit salvation or peace with you, but that our peace with you and with one another comes only through your mercy and on the basis of Jesus' merit. This is the wonderful truth that binds us together. And we pray that you would help us to experience it afresh this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to us and fill this place with your eminent presence. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we've been walking through 1 Corinthians, and we are at the back end of a section that started in chapter 8. And the big question over these three chapters, two, two chapters and the first verse of chapter 11, is can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And if you remember, we've been saying that uh, there are three parts to these sacrifices. There's the part that the worshiper offers and is burnt up on the altar. There's the second part that the worshiper is able to take home and eat. And there's the third part that's packaged up and then put out into the marketplace. And so your uh, idol temples would double as like Whole Foods and Harris Teeter. Uh, that's where you would get your meat. But the Corinthians, who had grown up amidst idolatry, have a problem. Some of them have become Christians, and now they are curious, can we continue to eat this meat that was offered to idols? Because that would seem to be worshiping these false gods. Remember, Paul says, well, yes and no. This is a, an issue of conscience, he tells us back in chapter 8. He opens up the whole section by saying, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Because the, the strong conscience, I guess, among the Corinthians had been arguing. Remember, their argument in chapter 8 was, we know the truth about God. We know that idols don't exist and that, that this idol meat is nothing, and so we can eat it. And Paul says, that's true. You have the right knowledge, but knowledge without love is worthless. He says you're making the wrong application of the knowledge. Uh, you are like a basketball player who never misses a shot, but always shoots towards the wrong goal. Right? You're like, I don't miss from three. 
I'm Steph Curry. But you're like, man, you are killing us. That is the wrong basket. You're going the wrong way. You might be excited in your knowledge, but your knowledge without love, it's pointless. It's detrimental to us as a church as a whole. He says, no, that's a misuse of your freedom when you are using your knowledge to demand your right to eat meat. He says, instead, you should let love govern your behavior. And that means that if there is a weaker conscienced brother or sister who thinks that eating this meat is idolatrous because that's the life that they came out of, you should, at least when you're around them, abstain from eating that meat. Remember he says in verse 13 of chapter 8, if eating meat causes my brother or sister to sin or to fall away from Christ, I will never eat meat again. Right? Paul loves you more than I do because I'm not giving up bacon. But the point is, I'm going to give up my right to eat for someone else's good. And so that's kind of the overhang of the whole section, right? Is that love needs to govern Christian behavior. What we're going to see today is as Paul continues that, he's going to say, love God exclusively. And then he wants to show us this other piece that part of how we love God back in response to how he has loved us is by loving one another. Our chapter, chapter 10, begins with this emphasis on our relationship to Israel. And what Paul is is pulling out there, he's showing us that just like Israel experienced the awesome power of God, and then some of them became idolaters in the wilderness and experienced the judgment of God. He's saying, so too, you Christians, you have experienced the power of God. You've experienced the awesome grace of God. Just as they walked through the sea, you have gone into the waters of baptism. Just as they drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ in the wilderness, you have drank the cup of holy communion. But guess what? Communion and baptism are not magic potions. Just because you have participated in those activities, you are not free completely from idolatry, right? You can't take the magic potion and then go to an idol feast and celebrate a foreign deity and not incur the judgment of God. That's what he's he's getting to. We haven't quite got there yet. And so, So the point, as we saw last week in verse 14, we covered the first 13 verses, flee from idolatry. He's warning, warning the Corinthian church to flee from idolatry. We see in verses 12 through 13, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. If you think that you are free from idolatry in your life, that you aren't subject to having your heart wander and worshiping something else in God's place, then you need to pay attention because you may fall. The love of money may take hold of your heart. The exaltation of family or spouse above God might take precedence in your life. Idols are always around us. Our hearts are our idol factories. We always find something. We always produce something within ourselves or from outside of ourselves. We look to something else other than God. It's, it's our sinful nature. 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. 
But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Remember, this is speaking to temptation, not circumstance. Uh, sometimes, I was talking with somebody earlier this week about uh, this verse is sometimes used to say, God won't give you more than you can handle. And that, that's just untrue. It doesn't say that. Uh, and then we see in Paul's own life in 2 Corinthians that he says, he's talking about his missionary work, and he said, we feel like we received a death sentence from God. Like we were ready to die. And he says, but God allowed this to happen to us so that we would rely on him and not ourselves. And so it's my contention that God will indeed sometimes give you more than you can handle so that you will rely on him rather than yourself. This verse here, though, what's clear is he's saying when you are in a position of temptation, when something is tempting you to sin, and any time you sin, you are worshiping something in God's place because what you worship is what you obey. Follow me there? You obey what you worship. You always act according to your strongest desire. And whatever your heart desires most strongly, that's what you're going to do. That's your obedience. And so whatever desire you are obeying will point you to your idols little convoluted but but you worship what you obey and so when temptation comes in your life and you are tempted to obey something else other than God when you are tempted to give your heart to something else in God's place Paul tells us there's a way out and last week I argued that setting our affections and our focus firmly on Jesus Christ is that way out it's when we set our affections on Jesus, when we set our hearts on Jesus, that revolution comes into our lives. When we remember that we have been saved out of slavery to sin and that it is no longer our master because we are now under the law of grace. That we can do rightly. That we can obey God rather than our sinful passions. That the way out is to trust Jesus. And then he will navigate you to wherever it is you need to go to get out from underneath of that temptation. You never have to sin. You never have to give into it. This verse actually makes me think of uh, the beginnings of the Revolutionary War when George Washington is surrounded uh, on Long Island or Battle of Brooklyn. I think Battle of Long Island, Battle of Brooklyn. I think it's called both. But he's surrounded by the British troops and they are basically, they've outnumbered him and they're waiting for him to surrender and then famously, that rain comes in, a rainy night and a foggy morning, and Washington sneaks every man and all the supplies across the East River. And the revolution lives on. He found a way out. And for us, we don't need to wait on rain or fog, but simply to lift our eyes out of the fog of self and fix them firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we will find our way out. There we will be able to resolve not to give in, not to capitulate to that which would dishonor God. Beware of idolatry. That's the, that's the point of the first 14 verses. We need to beware of idolatry because God has a zero-tolerance policy for it, as we saw uh, from Israel's adventures in the wilderness. Judgment comes in response to idolatry. 
Look at verse 22 in our text today. Paul says he's exhorted them not to participate in the table with demons, which we'll get to in a second. But then he says this, almost sarcastically. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Because your idolatry is going to provoke God into jealousy. Remember, God describes himself in the second commandment. Don't make idols because the Lord your God is a jealous God. Now, now God's jealousy isn't like ours. Your, your jealousy is, is um, it's the result of your love for others going extinct, ceasing. But, but God's jealousy is love that fights extinction, right? His jealousy works for your good. He, he desires you and you belong to him. But his, his jealousy is also judicial and right. He is as a jealous husband for his wife. I mean, you can imagine if uh, there were a husband and his wife cheated on him habitually, uh, was just a serial adulterer, and then he learned of her escapades, and she came home and told him, and he said, eh, game's on, not a big deal. Like, that, that husband doesn't really love his wife. Apathy is hatred. And God's jealousy, his love for his spiritual spouse, which is us, his love for us is directly in proportion, I'm sorry, his jealousy for us is directly in proportion to his love for us. And so when we turn away from him and serve other gods and unite ourselves to other loves, this kindles his wrath. Are you provoking God to jealousy? What do you love more than God? There's something convicting for me constantly is I think what you daydream about is what you really love. Or what you talk about when you're just hanging out. That's what you really are passionate about. And When I examine my own heart, I go, you know, I, I talk about sports and movies often more than I do spiritual things. What does this say about my heart? Am I provoking God to jealousy? Are you provoking God to jealousy? Because, friends, we are not stronger than he is. And if we give ourselves completely to idolatry, we will be judged severely. We don't have time to turn there, but you can write down for your homework. Just go read Ezekiel chapter 16, and you'll get a great idea about how God feels about adultery. Paul says, you understand this. You get it, right? You're sensible people. That's what he's saying in verse 15. Let me read it to you. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Uh, the word here for sharing also means fellowship or participation. 
koinonia? Is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Of course not, no. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So what's going on here? Because we've seen, Paul said, you can eat according to your conscience if you like, or not eat if it violates your conscience, or you're around somebody who would perceive that as sin, or that it would cause them to sin. And later in our text today, we're even going to see, Paul says, hey, in scenario one, go ahead and eat that meat. In scenario two, don't eat that meat. So what's different in these verses? Why is he um, unequivocally condemning participating in the eating of meat in this context? It's, it's the social aspect of it, right? If you notice, what, what he's setting up for us is he's showing us that there is a um, ceremonial aspect to the eating of meat that he's addressing here. And he does that by drawing on our own experience of communion. This is what uh, Tim Chester says. It's meat on its own, even meat offered to idols, has no significance other than being food from God. The blessing of a pagan priest doesn't transform it. So Paul feels free to eat meat previously offered to idols. But put the food and the idols together in the relational context of a pagan ceremony and everything changes. I I tried to think of a similar analogy. I thought, you know, if I am at a uh, kid's birthday party and Jane Christian from church comes over and we sit at the picnic table together and hang out and talk all evening, that's no big deal. Jane Christian and I are friends, hopefully. But if Jane Christian and I go out to a steakhouse for dinner and have that same conversation, the perception of that has changed, right? Like My wife is not going to be happy about that. Or maybe you could think of it this way. It'd be like you go to attend a wedding and the bride is beautiful, the, uh, the, the day is beautiful, and you just walk away and go, what a beautiful couple. And then the following weekend, you go to another friend's wedding, you, you only know the groom, and it's the same bride again, but marrying a different man. Right? The ceremonial aspect to these meals gives them meaning. And there's a ceremonial aspect to communion that gives it meaning, and that's going to inform how we understand this eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? So uh, 16a, cup of blessing, sharing in the blood of Christ. What you'll notice in this, this, the whole communion thing, and I don't, You know, we're going to be there again in two weeks at the end of chapter 11. But there is a vertical and a horizontal aspect to communion, to the Lord's Supper. There's a vertical and a horizontal aspect to the entirety of the Christian life. In 16a, the first part of it, the cup of blessing, speaks to our vertical relationship 
with God. Yes, in, when you partake in communion, you are sharing fellowship with Christ, the, the Christian life. You, you have a personal relationship with God. And it's awesome. That's what Jesus purchased for you, that you can know God, that you can call Him Father and He can call you Son. It's awesome. But that never happens in isolation from the other half of it. Right? We, when we take the Lord's Supper, we have koinonia, we have fellowship with, we share in, we participate in the person of Jesus, the, the person of God, Together. We do it together. It's not an individual activity. You see that in, in the second part of verse 16. The bread we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? The, the Lord's Supper is, is awesome. It not only brings us together as a people, but it brings the past of Calvary's cross, the substitutionary death of Christ, and the glorious future of sharing a meal together with Christ. Remember he said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. It brings the past and the present together in the present where we celebrate what God has done. And celebrations don't happen individually. When something goes right for you and you have a celebration, we call it a party, right? You got people over. We celebrate together. I hate that I have to take a sidebar here, but, but I must. This verse is sometimes used to justify uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. That simply means uh, what they believe is there's like a bell and the um, priest will, will say a little incantation, they ding the bell, and then at that point, the elements, the, the, the bread and the wine, literally become the body and blood of Christ. There's just simply not a hint of that in this text, not a hint of it in the entire New Testament, nor is there a hint of the derivative doctrine of the Lutherans called consubstantiation, which simply is, I don't know, I'm like, it's kind of the same thing, but they get around it. They're like, it's not literally the body and blood of Christ. They're, they're Lutherans. They have to do something a little different than the Catholic Church. But Jesus is through the bread and wine, around the bread, in the bread. Pick your preposition. He's all around it, but he's not literally the bread. We would deny both of those. Again, that's not, not in the text. What is in this text, what is in the New Testament, is the idea of metaphor, right? When Jesus is at the Last Supper, he says, you know, I imagine he broke the bread. Take and eat. This is my body. Like when he said that, he didn't disappear. He didn't start bleeding. Right? Fingers start falling off. <laughs> oh, it gets really gruesome. No wonder they called the early Christians cannibals, right? No. When he says, this is my blood, he didn't turn pale white and fall over. No, he's saying, this represents my body. This represents my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It's, it's a meal that points us back, well, at their time, forward, <laughs> but it points us to the cross and then beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection, into Jesus' return to us. It's a wonderful celebration. And it is a metaphor that demonstrates to us our need to take Jesus' righteousness into ourselves, right? It, it reminds us that, that 
Jesus died the death that we should have died. That his death is our death and his life is our life. And his peace with God is our peace with God. It makes a proclamation about the gospel, about our unity with Christ and with one another. That one another part is important. We saw it in the second part of 16, and in case we missed it, Paul wants to further highlight it in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since we all share the one bread. We share in the person of Jesus together and the bread symbolizes how the many are made one. I always love uh, in talking about the elements, baptism and the Lord's Supper, I always like to say, uh, and I'm stealing this, I can't remember the author's name right now, uh, but it says, baptism is the means by which one person is added to the many, the body of Christ, into the church. And communion is the means by which the many are made one. So you've got one added to the many and the many being made one. Both are signs and symbols that proclaim the gospel. They proclaim what God has done. And, And in taking communion, part of what we're doing is we're saying we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are following him. Our faith is in him. We've covenanted together. We need his righteousness. We're if this could be symbolically proclaiming, I was going to say silently proclaiming, but, but with our actions we are proclaiming the gospel. We're, we're showing through the elements and our participation with one another what the gospel is, our need for the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, which brings us into peace with God and future celebration, a future meal with Jesus shows us the, the what of the gospel, and it also shows us the who. Those who participate in communion are those who are properly confessing Jesus and following Jesus. They're those whom the church has said, yes, as, as I am affirming your Christianity. I wonder, have you recognized how the communal nature of this meal is often privatized? I was thinking about it this week, and I just, all of my experience, and every church I've ever been in, has been that when we take communion, you get real quiet. Make sure you don't make any sounds. Don't open your candy at that point, definitely. Bad idea. You close your eyes. Maybe shrink your shoulders in close to yourself, and it's, it's me and Jesus, me and Jesus. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not me and Jesus. It is we and Jesus. I mean, we do the same thing in our worship songs oftentimes, right? Close our eyes. I I even went to a church, and and you've probably been to one too, where the lights are basically out. You close your eyes, and there's maybe a fog machine going. The music is really loud, so you can't even hear the person next to you coughing. Me and Jesus, my spiritual experience. That's not in the Bible. I mean, it makes me feel awkward sometimes, but I've tried to, to practice it, is when I'm singing now, is I try to find somebody, like if I'm singing, look at them in the eye. <laughs> like I'm, I'm obeying Philippians, sing spiritual songs to one another. It's a communal thing that's going on. It's not just just me by myself. We're a family. We are united together intimately. 
Not, not me and Jesus, but we and Jesus. And we are making that proclamation that we are together. The church. Like, taking communion is an identification marker. Another question is, do you belong? Do you belong to a community that is promised to hold one another accountable, that, that is affirming your Christianity and allowing you to share in the Lord's Supper with them? <laughs> I remember when uh, I was younger, um, my mom's friend had come to church with us, and I was in a church where we took uh, the Lord's Supper every week, which I enjoyed, and the plates pass by you, is how that works. And uh, the plate's passing by, and her son, I don't know how old he was, but he goes, snacks, and just grabs a handful of them delicious wafers, you know. And his mom obviously paled and was mortified. <laughs> and that was all I could to not laugh. But uh, I think sometimes we, we view communion a little bit like the little kid. We're like, snacks, like this is a quick snack I'm going to have, and then church is going to be over. But the Bible has a deeper, more robust picture of this meal. There's, there's meaning to it. It's how the many are made one. It's how we together proclaim the glory of God and the gospel of God. That Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and is risen again. And that those who have faith in him, those who are proclaiming his death through the eating and drinking of the elements which represent his body and blood will be made like him. And will also rise from the dead. The meal says something. And here's Paul's big point. Here's where he's going to shift. Likewise, these ceremonial meals at the temples that you've been going to, they say something. Not only that, they, in the same way that you're united to one another and to God in communion, likewise, these meals unite you not to these false gods because these false gods don't exist, but to the demons that are behind them, underneath of them. I mean, do you see that? What am I saying then, verse 19, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to, I almost said sacrifice, I don't know why that made me laugh, sacrifice to demons and not to God. You can't share in both demons and God. I think in the Western church, this verse seems frivolous to most of us. Like what would have been just vividly true to the earliest of Christians, to us comes off like, demons, really? Paul, come on. Behind every false religion, behind every false god, there is demonic force. The enterprise of evil is at work. And I think we often just go, we can't see it, so it must not exist. Evil is real. And if you ignore it, if I ignore it, we ignore it at our own peril. 
we must not be participants with demons. And I think maybe their greatest achievement of evil is convincing the Western church that it doesn't exist. The context of the meal changes its acceptability for the Christian. That's what Paul's point is here. Love of God requires exclusion, exclusion. Man, I'm all tied up today. Exclusive devotion to God. And if we are not to be adulterers, we need to faithfully pursue God. We need to flee each and every temptation, for he has provided a way out of it. We need to throw ourselves upon Christ and remember, even when we fail, that he has died for us. And all of our um, actions are a way that we are loving God back. All of our actions that accord with his holy character. Now remember, the context is what changes the rightness or the wrongness of the eating of meat. And so Paul gets ready to talk about Christian liberty at the back end of our chapter. And he, he actually says uh, that he eats and he does so by giving thanks in verse 26, right? Uh, it says, eat everything, verse 25, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Right? It's all God's and I'm giving thanks for it. I can eat it. It's delicious but not if it's going to cause a brother or sister to sin. We liken to this to issues of Christian freedom um, anywhere along the spectrum from uh, consumption of alcohol to listening of music. That we want to be, there are things that the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not, that we perhaps should give up in certain contexts for the good of someone else. And I say, so if somebody that has struggled with alcoholism comes over to my house, like, I'm not going to crack open a beer at dinner. Like, it's probably not a great idea. Uh, or one of mine, like, I'm not huge on rated R movies, so if I come to your house, don't ask me to watch The Exorcist with you. Just not, not into it. You're not rated R movies, horror movies is what I meant there. We want to give up freedoms, things that we're allowed to do, for the benefit of someone else. It's about loving others. And Paul continues to tell us about this other-oriented perspective in verses 27 through 30. If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. That's pretty straightforward. Scenario number one, unbeliever invites you over to their house, eat whatever's set before you. When you learn that as a kid, it's really easy. You tell my kids, you're going to eat whatever, whatever's put in front of you. None of them are objecting on the grounds of conscience. Like, really, the broccoli, I have a conscience issue. It makes me feel like I'm sinning. You know, could you just give up making me my broccoli for my good? You know, I was, I was in church. This is what I heard. No, that's not. Eat what's put in front of you if you're at an unbeliever's house. That's scenario one. Scenario two, but, verse 28, if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Uh, the text is really ambiguous about who it is that's saying, hey, this meat was sacrificed to an idol, whether it's the host or somebody else that's there with you. But they're saying, if anybody's like, hey, hey, Joe Christian, did you know that this meat was sacrificed to Poseidon, God of the sea? It's going to be even more delicious now. Got rid of all the demons inhabiting our meat. Poseidon's in there now. Paul's saying, don't eat for their sake, all right? 
And in verse 29, he clarifies even further. He says, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I gave thanks? What he's saying is, when you choose to give up your freedom for someone else's good, it is a legitimate sacrifice. So I'm allowed to eat meat, and you cannot cast judgment on me because I'm eating meat in one context and not eating meat in another context. That's what he's saying. So it's my right to give up or to take advantage of. And I have decided to let love govern my behavior. I'm not wishy-washy on this. I'm going to love my brothers and sisters. I'm going to love my neighbors so that the gospel is not confused. Look back at verse 27. If any of the unbelievers invite you over, I think some of us have been sitting through this whole meat-eating, sacrifice-to-idols deal going, this doesn't really apply to me. It's great that it's in the Bible, but it's not relevant. And my fear is, is that maybe it's not relevant to you. Not because the Bible's irrelevant, but because you don't have any non-Christian friends that make these questions relevant to your life. Some of us, have built walls around ourselves of safety. Nice little Christian cocoon. That one day we're like, we're going to bust out of this cocoon and be a beautiful butterfly. But inside we are dying because we are disobeying the Lord's command to evangelize. To befriend the unfriendly. To love the unlovely. This this should be a problem for you. We should have to think through these issues. You know, what, what can I do and in what situation? We need to be able to, to engage with our neighbors in a way that is Christ-like and biblically informed. That they might know God. I hope that this text becomes precious to you because you are continually trying to answer questions about how you should behave about no, around non-Christians, your non-Christian friends. Tear down those walls. Love your neighbor. Love must govern. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That's a beautiful. That's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. You want to summarize the exhortation of Scripture? Let everything you do be done for the glory of God. But the question quickly comes, how then should we glorify God? I think Paul gives us a little bit of insight in verses 23 and 24 and then the back end of the chapter. Everything is permissible. That's that Corinthian slogan once again. Everything is permissible. And then he's going to correct it. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. How do you glorify God? Here's one way. Seek the good of those around you. Seek the good of the other person. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
You want to glorify God, verse 32? Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Let me summarize this in an application point for you. Don't be a jerk. It's that simple. Like, Don't tap your foot and look at your watch or cell phone when somebody in front of you in line, wherever you are, is taking longer than you would like. Really? Don't, when you are in traffic and the light turns and the other person doesn't peel out trying to get out of there, beep your horn and give them hand gestures. Don't offend people with yourself. Like, if you're going to offend someone, as a Christian, you probably should be offending some people. You need to offend them with the gospel, which is a stumbling block to Jews and an offense to the Gentiles. Chapter 1. Foolishness to those that are perishing, but the power of God to those that are being saved. If you're going to offend, offend with Christ, not with your sin. How do I glorify God? Verse 33, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Befriend people. Love them. This isn't people pleasing, looking for your identity in other people, right? We know that Paul's not much of a people pleaser from Galatians. He says he lives not to please men, but to please God. Whose benefit do you seek? In 11, verse 1, imitate me as I also imitate Jesus. As I also imitate Christ. Here's the second application point. Build up the church by not being a jerk and by sacrificing to build the church. Imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. Jesus, who Hebrews 12, went to the cross. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Here's the part I want you to hear. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Watch this. Everything was permissible for Jesus. And he gave everything to build up. Jesus would have been right to seek his own good, but instead he sought the good of us. No matter what he ate, no matter what he drank, he did it to the glory of God. The only offense he gave was not an offense that springs from sin, but the offense from being the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And the joy before Jesus was twofold. It was the delight of the Father and the Spirit with whom He's lived in eternal community forever, happily. 
It was their joy in Him. But also, the joy of saving you and me. He sought not His own benefit. He sought our benefit. God was perfectly content. There was no reason for Jesus, for God the Son to say, all right, I'm going to take on flesh. I'm going to go and, and descend among humanity, move from the penthouse to the garbage dump. There's no reason for Him to say, I'm going to, they're going to crucify me and kill me. Why would He do that? For us. For us. He, he, he did it for our joy. So, so how do you build up the church? Well, you seek the joy of someone else as your joy. Jesus saw our joy, and that brought Him joy. He saw it as, as if it was His own. And so if you are seeking to build others up and seeking their joy as your own, you will build up the church. Jesus endured the cross to create a cross-carrying community called the church. Let me ask you a question. Uh, what happens if you eat and you don't exercise all the time? You get unhealthy, right? Some of us have been eating for years without exercising spiritually. So, some of us come week after week and we eat. We feast on the Word of God. We enjoy the fellowship with one another. But we never exercise. We never do what the Word says. When you have knowledge without love, you end up puffed up instead of building up. We want to be a church that eats and exercises well. We want to be hearers and doers of the Word. And I think this just simply starts with attitude. Right? The question when you come for after church, the question is not, how was the music today? Well, it was all right. How was the preaching today? Eh, you know, I've heard better. How was the, the fellowship? That's not the question. The question you should be asking is, how was I today? How was my giving? How did I encourage? How did I rejoice? How did I comfort? How did I praise? How did I pray? How did I greet? How did I listen? How did I fellowship? How did I do? We need to get that Philippians 2 DNA and consider one another's interests above our own. We need to ask the question, not what can I get from this, but how can I give as Christ has given Himself to me? How can I seek the joy of others as my joy, as Jesus has sought my joy as His own? Jesus endured the cross to create a cross-carrying community called the church. I wonder where you got the idea that you could simply lay yours down and stop sacrificing. Christianity without a cross is a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. If your Christianity is 
crossless. It is Christless. And I fear that all of your religious ceremonies have been a participation with demons rather than the God of the universe. Friends, let us be a church who eats and exercises together.